Hi everyone welcome to another episode of my podcast we have a very special guest today all the way from Los Angeles California we have Emiko hi Emiko hi Chana thanks for having me so how are you this evening i'm very well thanks how are you i'm good so uh, i it is morning here now so it's around hey. 10 am <laughs> yeah how's the weather there a oh, pretty good day actually today very nice Good. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. I was I was watching I was actually watching your uh, Instagram stories like you had some heart trouble or something last day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> last night my partner and I went out to go get cheesecake for dessert <laughs> and we wanted to make a U-turn and he has a van that he uses for his company right. and we thought we could make the U-turn and get up on the side you know like on the sidewalk cuz it was really tight right and it's fine we had four cheesecakes in the van and the tire blew and we were stuck for i don't know 5 hours waiting for a tow truck to come uh, just but- eating cheesecake <laughs> just eating cheesecake like this just in the dark <laughs> so yeah but all is well all is well now yes yeah all is good because you you had the cheesecake right so <laughs> yes exactly it could be a lot worse you know it could be a lot worse yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so emiko uh, uh i got to know you from uh, we have a mutual friend from alif putra from singapore ah, alif <laughs> yes yeah alif uh so i actually i was a, i was a fan of alif uh i i met i saw him perform couple of years ago and then uh after i go to couple of his shows then we actually became friends <laughs> he's great he's so talented yeah. so unbelievably talented yeah right. so uh, so emiko uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, i read a lot about you but can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and you know your growing up Um well I had a really I think at the time I thought it was very weird I was not popular I was worse than nerdy I was bullied and when I say bullied I mean children threw rocks at me right. in school because I looked different because I'm half Japanese and I'm half Jewish and so they just sort of oh she's funny looking she plays music uh um I ended up it was great though now looking back because my mother would take me to japan every year mm. i never had a summer vacation which i was really bummed about but she put me into public school in japan so as soon as school was over here whoop, off on a plane we would go 15 hours in the air land 3 days 4 days for jet lag and then boom start school again um and so i was very integrated into um my mom's hometown with my cousins and all of my friends and everything um and i was juggling that with performing and playing music and at the time i was um a classical pianist as a kid and uh i ended up becoming an assistant to the choir director at the conservatory where i was learning and uh i performed for a bunch of foreign dignitaries and done a bunch of like accompanist work and things and um 
so it was a very unorthodox childhood in that sense. I didn't fit in, but now looking back on it, I'm so glad that I had it because mm. it really shaped me into uh, who I am now. And, and had my parents not pushed me that hard and had they not been that supportive, um, I probably wouldn't be invited on your podcast, <laughs> to be honest with you. So there you go. Yeah. So, so you had that uh, sort of uh, upbringing of, you know, the, like, like in the America and then in Japan. So you had the yeah. idea of both cultures and both way of life, right? Yes. And my father was in the foreign service. So we traveled. Um, he traveled more than we did, but I lived in Korea and in Japan. And, you know, and then later on in life, I traveled to um, China and Malaysia uh, and uh, Hong Kong and, and, um, so it's, it feels very natural to me to feel like um, the world is just one big neighborhood. It just feels normal. Um, and that's in large part because of my parents, you know. Right. So uh, when did you actually started playing like uh, piano uh, very, uh, very early? Yeah, I... So I have a different recollection than my parents do. My parents remember my playing. My father was stationed on the U.S. compound in South Korea, in Seoul. We lived um, on the compound there. And he remembers my playing, like sort of climbing up and playing folk songs when I was about two or two and a half. My earliest recollection, and I remember... My grandmother would come visit from the States. My grandmother is a graduate of the Juilliard School of Music, which is a very famous music um, secondary or a higher learning um, school here in the States. And she would come to visit us when we were there. And I remember she would sort of play with me and things. That I remember. But what really, the earliest memory that I have is when I was, gosh, I must have been about three or four watching Mikhail Baryshnikov dancing, I think it was the Nutcracker, but it might've been Swan Lake. And I just remember feeling so moved by it and feeling so upset that I wasn't there performing with the orchestra. Mm. And so I immediately went over and I think my mom was telling me like, I went down, I started plunking out the Nutcracker suite. And th- so that's my earliest memory, but apparently this was happening a couple of years before that and I don't remember it. So. But I have it on good authority that I apparently started when I was two or two and a half, something like that. Right. So, so what do you what do you declare as your like your first public performance? Oh goodness. <laughs> um, well, that depends because are we talking about classical music or are we talking about original sort of popular music? Because they're two yeah. different. Right, there were two different things. You can, so you can share about both. <laughs> okay, gosh, I'm trying to think. Ooh, classical music. I think. Well, I had had a number of public performances, but the one that I knew, I felt really, sort of, it dawned on me what was happening. Was we were in, I think we were in Rock Creek Park in Washington D.C., and there was an outdoor concert that was being hosted for the. United States Secretary of Transportation, Agriculture, Education. There were a whole bunch of these, you know, high-level government officials, and I had to get up and 
perform. And that was really the minute that it hit me. And there was a, a choir singing and everything. And I just went, huh, okay, I guess I'm going to do this now. You know, my feet didn't even touch the ground. And I was sort of like, okay, sure, no problem. And I just, I remember at that moment sort of just going, I looked, I got to the piano right, you bow. I looked and there they were all in a row with the audience. And I just went, huh. And I didn't really know what to think. I just knew it was a big deal. And then I sat down and I played and like that, it was over. <laughs> so I think that was my, my first like big revelation in classical music. And I think I was, oh, I might've been, I, I want to say I was probably 12, 11, maybe, maybe a little earlier. I, I honestly can't remember. Um, and then, uh, let's see, in pop music, I remember I must have been 14. I must have been 14 or 15. Yeah, I must have been about 14. Um, I, I decided, my parents decided to pull me out of school. I wasn't doing very well. Um, I, I wasn't, you know how sometimes um, you just know when a situation is wrong for you. Like you just don't fit in. It's not a bad situation. It's just, you just go, whoop, this is not for me. Right. And um, after a few years in secondary school, uh, my parents realized that I was not, I just, my head wasn't there. I was always at the music conservatory. I was always writing music. I was always sort of off doing my thing. And so they went, yeah, okay, maybe we're gonna, maybe we're not gonna go the traditional road here with our daughter. So I had a band uh, and we found this gig at this old club in Maryland uh, about 45 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. called Phantasmagoria, which is no longer there. I'm very sad because it was a really cool place. It was like a record store in the front, and then you walked all the way through this long hallway, and the, behind this door was this huge nightclub, just ginormous, with big stickers and everything, on the, you know, posters and everything on the wall. And um, I remember that was my first, like, gig, right? And... Uh, we booked out the night. I seem to remember selling out the club. My father might tell you otherwise, but I don't remember. But I do remember everybody showed up, like the kids that used to bully me from school, the, you know, the head cheerleader, the popular kids, my teachers, my doctor came, <laughs> like all of these people. And then people had seen it in the paper and they were just, you know, everybody, um, everybody came like literally every people brought their kids even though they weren't supposed to and they just sat there with their children and it was, it was really it was really cool i remember yeah right <clears throat> god i haven't thought of that in years actually chana thank you thank you for that <laughs> yeah so so with regards to pop music uh what were your like your favorite music back then oh that's easy so um, 
I, there were two groups, well, one singer and then one group that I grew up listening to that like nonstop on cassette tapes. I would rewind it, you know, and then play it back. Um, So the first was uh, a group called the B-52s. Right. Um, And then uh, everybody knows this about me. This is no secret, but it's getting a little old. Uh, Billy Joel actually was a huge influence. And, um, I would just listen to him nonstop. And my, my parents would give me a little allowance, you know, every week they'd give me a little money and I would go to the record store and uh, they had this rule where I had to buy one classical artist, right? Or one classical piece. And then I could buy one thing of my own that I wanted. Barely had enough money for both, but I managed. And it was always either Billy Joel or the B-52s. And then whatever random classical thing was on sale that I didn't care about. And <laughs> honestly, and I just sort of, I pushed the classical cassettes over here and I would just listen to Billy Joel or the B-52s all the time. Um, yeah, and I think that was kind of, that was it for a long time. And then as, as sort of it went on from there, my taste grew into, I mean, a lot of, a lot of sort of prog stuff, King's X, King Crimson, mm. Rush, um, I'm trying to think, like, uh, Meshuggah, weird, <laughs> yeah. weirdly enough. I started at, at Billy Joel and I ended up at Meshuggah. <laughs> um, you know, then Alanis Morissette, uh, you know, like all these different, and then like, a, I like a lot of funk, I like a lot of R&B stuff, uh, jazz. So it really grew, but it started with those two uh, acts yeah. at the beginning. Because when I, when I listen to your songs, uh, I I can I can imagine that there is a influence of Billy Joel because you you're you're kind of I feel that some of your songs are very direct and you express like it's it's not a metaphor you express real feelings in words in oh, yes. songs right like I feel yes. that because Billy Joel songs are similar to the like that right because he the way he yes right it's it's a very um. I think I, when I write, it's really about what I'm going through or if somebody's going through something that I happen to know, then I internalize it and make it like, okay, if I was in their shoes, what would that be like for me? And so it comes out very directly. I don't believe, um, I think there, I've always felt this. I feel like there's enough communication problems in the world <laughs> as it is. I think that if like for me as a songwriter, the best thing I can do is just be direct. Did you get the message? Great. Okay. We're moving on, <laughs> you know? So that's always been my, my style. And I think in large part that is because of him. Cause I did listen to him repeatedly like every day. And so I definitely got that style of expression. I think. Right. <clears throat> so, Emiko, what was uh, what was your first? Uh, you, when did you write your first song? Like, oh my gosh, my <laughs> my first. So, okay, there's two stories that run about uh, two years apart. So, the first song that I ever wrote, I think I was eight years old. Um, it's a song called. <laughs> It's a song called, I Have a Friend Named Annie. And, the, <laughs> yeah, okay, wow, sure. My uh, my father used to play this game with me when I was growing up, where after dinner, 
would go over to the piano and he would sit, we had a big blue and white couch behind us and he would sit there and he would call out song titles, just random topics or sentences or whatever. And I would have to make up a song on the spot about that. And then we would always tape record them, but I never actually wrote them down. I just sort of, I have this memory where I can just remember and somebody goes, okay, play that song for me about such and such from 1998 and I'll go done and I can do it. But that particular song, he said to me, oh, you should write that down. So I got out my little notebook and I wrote the words and then I wrote the music and everything. And that was the first song that I wrote, wrote like that was completed. And then two years later, um, for my parents' anniversary, I wanted to write them a, a song as a gift and get into a recording studio. So I convinced my best friend's mother at the time, who knew a guy who had sort of a home recording setup, yeah. to let me go over there, right? And I raked leaves and I saved up some money and I, <laughs> like, just for one song. And I recorded them this little single cassette tape called and the song was called I am your child and they still have that so those are the first two that I ever wrote that are real like that are real songs with the verses and a chorus and you know like they're real I don't think they're very good necessarily or maybe they're very basic but they were real <clears throat> so so you're 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 grateful that your parent really you know support you towards music well, they, so, okay. My father was very supportive of me. My mother, who is Japanese, is, right, there's a stereotype about Asian moms that right. want to push their kids into math or science or technology. Um, and she did try that for a while, but then when she realized that she was just going to lose that fight with me, right. she thought, fine, then here's what we're going to do. I don't understand the whole music thing. She didn't really understand what I was doing for a long, it was only in the last probably five or 10 years that she really got it. But she used to say to me, I don't know what you're doing. I, I don't know. I don't know. Right. She has a very thick Japanese accent, but she would say, just do your best. Just do your best. Be better than your best. And so I always grew up with that work ethic. So no matter what, I knew my mother was supporting me in the way that she knew how, which is great because I think nowadays, at least in Western culture, there's a lot of parents are saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're happy. And I go, that's great. But if you stink at what you do and you're happy, you're not going to be very successful. I hate to tell you that. That's not how the real world works. So my right. parents really gave me this tremendous sense of um, work ethic, you know, which is, which is really important. Like, I don't, I don't really say that to them often enough. <laughs> I just sort of, uh, but yeah, they, they did. They really, really did. They made, oh, my mother used to hate it when I would, I hated to practice. Oh, I hated to practice. Oh my gosh. And she would come out of that kitchen screaming at me, you better sit your butt down and practice that piano. What do you think we're paying for all this for? I mean, and she really drove it home and it's a good thing she did because that's what I do for a living, you know? Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, preparing for this uh, you know when we said that we are going to do this podcast i was actually i went yeah. to the you know your youtube channel i went 
Oh my gosh. I listened to a lot of a <laughs> lot of songs on Spotify. And then oh my gosh. the earliest I think the album I can see in Spotify is the album from 2001, right? Her Lies. Yeah, Here Lies Tinkerbell, yes. Where yes. in in the album cover you looks like, you know, it's like you're like Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've never gotten that before. I got um If you remember a movie called The Matrix, yes, yes, there yes. was a girl named Trinity, right? Yes. And everybody said, "Oh, you look like Trinity from The Matrix, who's walking with the sunglasses <laughs> and the leather and everything." And I was like, "Yeah, okay, sure." So yeah, that was that was. Um, there was one release prior to that that is out of print that I will never. It's very like limited. Nobody will ever know about. There's a few people that know. And they know, like, if I show up in their town and I hear them scream it out, I get equal parts excited and equal parts scared because I'm like, oh no, they know me from then. Oh, <laughs> so Tinker, yeah, Tinkerbell was the first um, international release that we had. Right. Um, and she's Tinkerbell's going to be 20 years old next year. Next yeah. November 1st is the 20th anniversary of the release of Your Latest Tinkerbell. Yeah. So, so a couple of songs that I like from that is I like uh, Emergency Man. Oh goodness. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> And then there's a song called The Tongue. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Tell me like you know what's the concept and idea behind that album? Uh so that album is there were two there were two things happening simultaneously at that time so I, i was living in new york on my own i was a teenager um who probably should not have been living in new york on my own but i was i was young enough and i just big fat moved out and um i would go to this rehearsal studio um that was 30 feet underground it was in an old bomb shelter Um, and there was a guy that ran the studio. He owned the studio named Barney. And uh, Barney was this sort of skinny guy with a long ponytail. He wore a purple bandana, you know, around his head. And the studio was open 24 hours a day. And this place was a haven for all horrible things. Drugs, alcohol, sort of uh, petty crime, sex like real rock and roll stuff that, you know, he, I was, oh, I must've been 17 when we met. And uh, he was at that point, I think he was in his forties, give or take. He never let me do drugs. He never let me drink. He never let me go party with the people that were there. He said, no, you're here to work. So at the end of the hallway, there was this one studio, Studio C, with the, a really beat up Baldwin piano, like an upright. And that's where I would go lock myself. I would get there at about 10 or 11 at night and I would work till about four in the morning just writing songs. And every once in a while you'd hear people screaming outside, bottles breaking or whatever, but he always made sure that I was okay. Um, and so one day there was this horrible fight. They were having a party and this girl came running in screaming, she's gonna kill me, she's gonna kill me. And I turned around and there is, later I found it was her identical twin sister, had her pushed up against a wall with the drum cymbal jammed in her neck. 
<laughs> this was a fight over a boy, right? Somebody was cheating on somebody's boyfriend, whatever, whatever. Right. And here comes Barney walking up and he says, hey, you guys, break it up. She's working. He sort of gets him away and he comes into the studio and he says, hey, I'm really sorry about that. And he said, you know, these people, they just, they don't listen. They, they're sort of out in the, he's very like, oh, he's, they're out in the chaos and the universe is very, he was one of these sort of ethereal people. And I said to him, I said, you know, Barney, I'm not going to be the Wendy to your Peter Pan because you're running this place. Like it's this haven for people that don't want to grow up. They just want to sort of stay irresponsible and you're allowing it to happen. I'm not going to be right. Wendy, who was sort of the mother figure and all of that. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you're not my Wendy. You're my Tinkerbell. Mm -hmm. You are, you are the hope that I have for all of us to get out of here. And I just thought that was the weird, right here I'm 17, 18 year old kid. I just thought that was the weirdest thing in the world. I was like, all right, whatever, man, you're high, sure. But I carried that with me. Um, and so the album, that was going on at the same time I was in this on again, off again, non-relationship, relationship, whatever you want to call it, with this guy who <laughs> um, was my guitar player. Yes, okay, all right, I admit it. Um, and I just thought he was just the baddest dude in the world, right? Leather jacket, smoking a cigarette, Paul Reed Smith, and a ponytail, and just a badass dude. And man, I wanted to just roll with him all the time. And he was looking at me like a little kid going, go away, go away, <laughs> shoo, shoo, go away, you know? Um, but eventually we got together, and um, the whole... But I found out he was very much like Barney, and that he didn't really want to grow up. He sort of wanted to have his... Uh, routine, his way of life, being irresponsible. And so the whole record is based on the idea of what happens when Neverland, right? Peter Pan's home, when Neverland crumbles. Mm. Does the hope die? What happens to Peter Pan? What happens to the Lost Boys? What happens to the children? What happens to Tinkerbell, right? Is it, and so in that respect, the album chronicles that very particular snapshot in time of my life where it was extremely rock and roll in the truest sense. The only thing, and people don't believe this about me, but it's true. I've never done drugs. You know why? They wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> this is the joke. I'm like, can I try? And they're like, no, you can't try any. You're too nice. You're too good. Don't ruin your life like us. I just want, no, we're not, not even one. No freebie, nothing. Not even a taste. Go away. So I never got to have, not that I wanted it. I mean, now looking back, right? Obviously, like a lot of people that I know are ruined because of it. But I was in that without having it in me if that makes sense. Right. So Here Lies Tinkerbell chronicles that whole, um, that whole idea of the nasty, dirty, um, relentless lifestyle, right? But I never actually lived it. Like I would go back to my apartment on the Upper East Side overlooking the East River across from the United Nations and with my doorman and wearing my leather. <laughs> and that's, that's how it would be. It was weird. It was like I was living two lives, but that's what it was, you know? Right, right. So that's what the, that's what the record is about. <laughs> yeah. So, Epicot, uh, these days, uh, you know, uh, in the evening here in Manila, it's, it's raining in the evening. 
So uh-huh. I was uh, I was listening to your songs and then I I left the office and then I was walking. You know, it started raining. Then you know I'm kind of singing in my mind. It's raining. You know, your songs seven steps away. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah, it it it, it gives the. I, I mean, that's what I was earlier saying that the way you with the way you express your songs that when you're talking about you know it's raining in Fifth Avenue and I I I I kind of gets that idea immediately of you know I have a I have a view of that uh, New York you know so right. yeah can you tell me a little bit about that song Seven Steps Away Yeah so. <laughs> That song is a continuation of Stuck in Neverland, or I mean, and Here Lies Tinkerbell, but in a weird way. So I ended up, unfortunately, I ended up, the the gentleman, the guitar player gentleman, unfortunately ended up having some difficult times with drugs. And so he ended up behaving poorly toward me. That's it. And, And he's since apologized. So I don't, in no way am I telling the world he's a bad person. He's actually cleaned up his act and is a very nice person now. But at that time, he was not, he was not a very nice guy. So um, unfortunately, we had an incident where the police were called, there were bruises, there were, you know, and my next door neighbor uh, in our apartment building was this private investigator. (laughs) Like, it, it's so New York. He worked at a law firm during the day. And then at night, he was a private investigator. And he's this really cool guy that we used to call Batman because he used to go out clubbing, but he would always wear a suit and tie and he had his little nerdy glasses on, but he was really into techno and crazy lifestyle stuff. And um, he very, very kindly would do things like leave me chicken soup at my door or make sure I had coffee. Because I couldn't, it was hard for me to move for various, right? We don't have to get into it. But the point is that he made sure that I was okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, one night he, he, he called me or I called him and it must've been like two or three in the morning. And he said, do you need anything? And I said, oh, I'm out of something. And he goes, I'll go get it for you. And I said, no, 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 no. Come on. It's the middle of the night, man. You don't have to do that. He goes, no, 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 it's fine. I said, I don't want to put you through the trouble. And he goes, why not, Em? From your door to my door, it's only seven steps away. And so the idea of the song is that help is really nearby. It's not, things are not, even in the worst time, things are not nearly as bad if you just look, right? I was in my own apartment, beaten up and bruised, thinking, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I'm ashamed. I'm this and that. And next door is my neighbor seven steps away willing to go get me coffee, soup, sandwich, whatever, you know, just talk to me on the phone, like whatever I needed. And so one day we were walking down Fifth Avenue, actually going to frame a picture for his girlfriend, who is now his wife. And it started raining. And I got that. And literally, (laughs) that's what the song is about, is it starts off, we're walking and we have to run because a thunderstorm came. So it's very literal. Um, And that's what that song is about. Yeah. So uh, when I was, uh, I mean, followed your Instagram, I see the post uh, about your American Bulldog. (laughs) Oh, Victoria, yes. And then she has has her own Instagram also, which I started following as well. (laughs) I saw 
<laughs> we saw that. Yes, she has a she's a doggy model. She has her own Instagram page. She does a lot of modeling for bow ties and for um like little coats and things like that. <laughs> so yeah. She's everybody in my family has to be in show business somehow. I don't know. But we all have social media attached to us, <laughs> including so the she, dog. So she's a rescue? She's a rescue, yeah. We got her six months ago, the day after Valentine's Day, February 15th, we got her. Um and uh she's weird man i'll tell you she's she lived on the streets for a long time she was uh she has a lot of problems but um but not like violent problems just she dreams a lot she she knows she was very abused it's very clear um mm. and now she's very spoiled and she knows that she's spoiled so she gets away with just about everything <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. Yeah, because dogs are because I I actually have I also have uh, I like beagles, uh, so I have oh, nice. I actually have two beagles. So oh, one is one is one year old, the other one is twelve years old. Uh, Goodness, the the boy is twelve years old. He I got him when I was three months. So we were looking for we were looking for uh, for a pet. So we went to the like in, there's an area that there's a lot of pet shows, and then. I see this guy inside the cage, you know, it's it's stuck inside. The, it's it's so small that it was like three yeah. months. Now he he turned just this this month. He turned twelve years old, so he's still there. Wow! <laughs> Goodness, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Wow. But, but now he's just you know just lying there. He only barks when he when he feels hungry. <laughs> he's an old man. He's earned that right. He's an old man. He can yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 what I like about your songs is there are a lot of songs that you've written which are very empowering and very inspirational. So, uh, one you. that I w like to talk about is This Is Me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about that? I think that's from the Moving the Universe album, right? That's from Moving the Universe Part 1, yeah. We never did Moving the Universe Part 2, come to think of it. <laughs> um, that's a we okay, so that's a really weird... So the story behind, the story behind that is really, really lovely. But the, the situation has become very bizarre. Um, so <clears throat> I wrote that song when my ex-husband was going to propose to me and he was, he was basically saying to me, look, you know, this is me. He literally said, this is me loving you. I'm doing, we were having a fight, the kind sort of, not a fight, but just sort of an argument. He said, look, this is me. I'm loving you. I'm doing the very best that I can, right? This is me. You gotta, this is what you're getting. And, uh, and so the song is about sort of hoping that you will be loved anyway, or in spite of yourself, right? That your partner or somebody will, will take you and love you for who you are. Um, so in that way, it's very uh, empowering to, to admit, I think, to admit your faults and to admit your weaknesses, but to, to lay it out there, you know, for, for the love of your life, right? I think that's a very risky thing for anybody to do. Uh, <laughs> we've since divorced. <laughs> it didn't quite turn out the way that it started. So, but the song is still, I'm very proud of the song. And I think a lot of people, 
I mean, a lot of people go through that, right? Like they, they want to put their heart out. They want to do their very best. And I think things start well. The key mm-hmm. is to keep them going. Um, so that song is, is really about the beginning of it, of the relationship, the beginning of a love that you want to be you, right? You don't want to be somebody else. You want, you want them to love you for who you are. Right. Right. unfortunately it didn't end it didn't end the way that we had planned but you know it happens yeah so there, there's also one more song that I like uh, you, you there's the song called I Believe You and then you also started some sort of a project also right based on that song yeah. can yeah. you talk about that I Believe You project so They're all connected, Shana. You're going to learn this about me real quick. So, unfortunately, This Is Me ended and turned into I Believe You because uh, there was an incident. We're still going through a court case, so I can't say too much about it, but I can say there was an incident that was physical that required me to leave because my physical body was not safe we'll leave it there right we don't have to say any more than that um as i chose to fight the case in court um what was very bizarre to me i'd never been through this before in my life was that the judge was blaming me and he wasn't believing me. He said, well, if this is such a big deal, why did you, why didn't you just deal with it then? Why did you wait till, well, no, I did deal with it. Now, I don't believe you, right? You're a terrible, you're a terrible wife and you're an awful mother and you're a terrible person because of these things. And I don't think this really happened. We bring him proof. We bring him a recording. We bring him text message apology. No, 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 You must have done something to upset him. And it, the case is still going on. This was now going almost six years ago that this happened and I'm still fighting it. And when you're new in a situation like that, you freak out, right? You've never been in this position before and you just think, oh my gosh, am I going crazy? Did this really happen? Yes, it happened. How come they don't believe me? It's on the tape. I don't understand. And so I think I did what any person would do in my situation, which is you stay up in the middle of the night and you get on Google. <laughs> <laughs> and you just start Googling anything, you know, you want, you want some sort of comfort or you want a, a fact or you want something to, to legitimize or to validate your position. Mm. And I found this um, video that, I don't know if it was Vogue or Mary Claire, somebody put out this video that said, if I could, if you could say one thing to survivors of sexual assault, what would it be? And they interviewed all these different survivors, right? Um, different ages, different races, like like straight across the board. And they all said the same thing. They said, if, I could, if, if you could say one thing, it would be, I believe you. I thought, oh my gosh, yes, because that's the thing that's so important is by not believing somebody, what ends up happening is you're squashing their voice, you're squashing their dignity, you're squashing their trauma, you're squashing their existence, right? Mm. It's as if it didn't happen. And then the the attacker gets off free, no problem, can do it again, can go off and whatever they want to do. 
So I wrote the song with my then producer, Tommy Farragher, who's a tremendous Grammy nominated uh, songwriter and producer. And um, it was gonna go on the, uh, on the EP looking at later. And it wasn't meant to be the single. The single was actually supposed to be the song called California Screaming, this really funky, upbeat, groovy tune. Yeah. And then in October, um, this whole news thing broke. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, this movie producer, was yeah. accused of, right, this whole story came out about Harvey Weinstein and all these women and the Me Too movement and everything. And my phone started blowing up. My assistant's phone, or just text messages, phone calls, and my manager's phone. Everybody that had heard the song said, you gotta, you gotta put this out as the single. And I thought, and I, you know, and the whole reason that I wrote the song was because it wasn't, I, as I did the research on cases like this, nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, the, the victims are not believed and they are actually punished by the US court system systematically. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> we're not gonna have that. No, thank you. And I thought, look, if I can't say anything in court, they're not gonna believe me, they're gonna use it against me, whatever. Okay, I'm lucky, I have a platform. As a songwriter, as an artist, as somebody who's known in various communities, I can use my voice because what about the people who aren't famous, right? The Harvey Weinstein thing was actors and actresses who were very famous, multimillionaires, people that could afford amazing lawyers, Hollywood press agents, but what about normal, the school teacher, the truck driver, the, you know, whatever, the personal trainer, the grocery bagger, what about those people that didn't have that voice? So I took a shot in the dark and I put out, with the help of my assistant and my manager, I put out a call for um, survivors to be part of a music video where we all tell our stories. And uh, we got easily over 200 submissions. We narrowed that down to 22, including there were children who had been abused and we had children and their mothers and a father who came because his daughter had been abused by his son. All these people showed up to tell their story. And um, we put the call out on a Tuesday. And by that Saturday, we were on set making the music video. It came out, whatever it was, a few weeks later. Um, it made BuzzFeed. The New York Times wrote about it. We had a bunch of press. Uh, and needless to say, the, the court, the judge was not happy. <laughs> and I thought, well, you should have believed me. You should have, because I'm not going to put up. The, the human, human beings have have a tremendous amount of responsibility and power in, in the domain over their own self-respect. And just because you've been abused, if you've been raped, if you've been beaten up, if you've been bullied, doesn't mean that you live your life as a victim. You have the power to turn that around and actually become helpful to other people. And so I chose, knowing that this was gonna be a, a long-term fight, I chose, rather than to stay silent, I thought, all right, if I can't talk about certain things because of the court case, I'm going to use my voice to help other people that are going through this. And I'm going to use my career and my position as a recording artist to do this because nobody in court can tell me not to do that. That's not, nobody would do that. So that's how that started. And the I Believe You project 
since has partnered with um, a wonderful domestic violence resource center in California called Shepherd's Door that does everything from literally like rescuing women out of windows, like that are ready to just, you know, leave, they lock the door of the attackers on the other side. I mean, to finding people homes, to re-education, to therapy, to all these different things. And our mission really is to reform the justice system here. Mm. So it started off as a song and became, and now it's a documentary and the documentary is placing in all these different film festivals. So it's really become an opportunity to give voice to people that um, I think that really deserve it, you know? Um, I know that's probably not the answer that you wanted. You probably wanted a really cool rock and roll answer, but that's not, <laughs> that wouldn't be the truth. <laughs> this is literally what the song is about. It's, it's, it's telling survivors and friends and family of survivors, hey, I believe you, I, I get it. You know, you're not alone in this and I may not be able to offer you much else, but I can tell you that I believe you and that you're not going crazy. You're not alone, you know? And that's very, that's so important because I didn't have anybody other than really my parents. I didn't have a lot of people to tell me that. So, um, so yeah, that's what that's about. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, these things happen, you know, quite regularly, right? It's not like it's, it's yes. always happening. And then, uh, right. and people seems to be desensitized with all the social media and everything. So people just, oh, listen right. to it. They see an article or they see a video and then they moved on. They they never right. like, you don't. I think you need to build that empathetic uh, sort of uh, you know empathy towards these people, right? Because it's uh, until it happens to you, you will not. Uh, you will probably don't. You know, it can happen to you or your loved one. So it's it's important to have empathy and you know. Right. And it doesn't, and it's not, and still, even now, people, at least in the United States, I don't know how it is in Asia, but at least in the U.S., people still have this preconceived notion that, oh, oh, you were attacked. It must have been a stranger that jumped out of the bushes with a knife. No, it's no. usually someone that you know, someone in your family, a coworker, somebody that can get close to you without being suspected, right, which right. is how they also get away with it for so long. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so I felt like that's a, it's a really, um, and I get a lot of, I tell you on the video that's on my YouTube channel, I get a lot of hate mail. I have people giving me death threats. I have people threatening my family. I have people telling me I'm awful. I had one guy tell me the song sucks, but the keyboard solo was awesome, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> but it's always the same kind of, and I never publish those comments because I don't want to spread hate. Right. Um, and, and it's not about lack of freedom of speech. It's just like, well, why do I want to engage with somebody that's an internet troll? I'm not interested in doing that. The song is there to help people. The video is there as a resource for people. If they need, they can find us. Um, you know, and if you believe that attacking an innocent person is acceptable, then you should probably stay in the basement and type horrible things. Because if you go out in the world, somebody's gonna throw rocks at you probably, or worse, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's that song. <laughs> it's so, never easy with me. Yeah, so 
that because you touched on social media so how do you uh, sort of dealing with because social media seems to be very negative <laughs> you know because mm. uh most of the stuff you see it's like it's 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 very negative but i mean personally like for example i'm trying to put out a lot of positivity and you know just focus on things right. and you know not i don't want to be you know a part of this camp or that camp you know right right so i try yes. to be like but how do you deal with the social media because especially now that you're an established artist so people might be like rudely commenting on you on your post yeah or- they do they do um i've had to learn i've had to learn very quickly um everybody is entitled to their opinion and if i put something out there you are entitled to like it you are entitled to love it you're entitled to hate it and you're entitled to keep scrolling or ignore it or you're entitled to sit there and type out a long thesis about why I'm a terrible person and I'm ugly and I'm fat and I can't sing and I probably smell bad and everybody hates me and all whatever whatever but guess what just as much as you're entitled to write that about me I'm entitled to delete it yes that's simple like and literally like there's so many people that get they take it so personally and I just don't see the point in taking it personally. So normally like if somebody's a real a hole to me, pardon my language, what I'll do is I'll write back to them I'll say, "Hey man, thank you so much for taking 10 minutes out of your life that you can never have back." Right. So write to me to tell me why you hate me. I appreciate you taking the time to troll me to form an opinion that I don't care about. Have a nice day. And that's literally like I don't do that very often, but every once in a while somebody will just keep needling and keep needling and I have to sort of put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I just block people or I don't I don't listen to it because I know who I am. And I think that um the other thing for me is like I don't like to put out negative stuff. And I just had this conversation actually with my coach this morning as the 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 I believe you documentary is going further and further and I thought, well, am I putting out negativity by talking about sexual assault and domestic violence. And he said no, it's the intention behind it. If you're putting it out intending to be a victim, then that's not great. But if you're putting it out with the intention of helping others in service of somebody, then that's a very positive thing, right? You can right. you can have something positive come out of something very tragic. So I try to use social media in that way. I also try to only associate with those types of like-minded people just in terms of my peer group obviously that's not always possible um i just don't take it to heart because social media for me is a tool it's not where i live right it's it's my um loudspeaker <laughs> for lack of a better term it's that's what it is for me it's an amplifier um and if people you know hopefully people will like it because my the whole point of my putting stuff out there is to affect people in a positive way or to activate them to to make a change or to think about something differently if they don't like it they don't like it it's not much i can you know i if i met that person i probably wouldn't like them very much either so what am i going to do about it at the end of the day you know there's not much to there's not much to carry with that i don't think yeah <clears throat> emiko i i i like to thank you for making the kita <laughs> you know 
Being that awesome. <laughs> but wait, I don't know if you know this, but so this is Carlos. Everybody knows Carlos, but Carlos has a sister named what? Carlotta. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yes, there's more than one. There's actually another, there's a signature guitar that's coming that I'm developing, actually. Oh, Carlos, you go over here, buddy. Whoa! Okay, hold on. Um, there's a signature guitar that's coming, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. It'll nice. be ready next year. But anyway, um, yes, what were you saying about the guitar, Dan, John? <laughs> I, I remember seeing this, like, in the, you know, the early 90s, there were a lot of people playing it, but somehow it, yeah. it kind of disappeared, but... It, I, Thank you for bringing it back and, you know, putting it <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for uh, for knowing that it's cool because not everybody got that message yet, but yeah, it is so cool. cool. <laughs> it's, well, I, you know, my thing was, I think people, they, like, they played it like there was always this cheesy factor to it. Right. You know, and I think that they didn't, what, what happened was if you're going to be cheesy, go all the way. Don't, don't be semi-cheesy, right? Don't be a little cheesy. Right. Just be super cheesy. Because um, here's the thing. The guitar is not a badass instrument, right? It's not a Paul Reed Smith. It's not a Les Paul. It's, it, you're, it's, not a, I mean, it's not a flying V. It's not any of those things. But if you, you have to have the, okay, <laughs> I sound like hippie. The spirit of the keytar has to live in you, Chana. That's the thing. And I do and I do believe that because I've had so many people call me to play keytar for stuff. And I say to them, in this particular case, um, these are custom Alesis Wireless Vortex 2 keytars. Um, and, and I'm honored that Alesis has put so much faith in me with their instrument. But it's a controller. So you could do it on a keyboard as well. Right. Ah, but there's a difference in the feel, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and I thought everybody who's playing a guitar is playing it, you know, it's solid black or solid white or it's got a little red stripe on it or whatever. And I thought, no, mine need to look like mermaids. Like, <laughs> if I'm going to do it, I got to do it big and I got to do it my way. So, you know, we sat down and we planned out these guitars and here they are. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that goes very nicely with the Kita is you had this album cover, a single, Call to Arms, the single. You're wearing yeah. that, you know, the shiny headpiece. <laughs> it was, that was chain mail. That was medieval armor that I was wearing on my head. It weighed a lot. And it was, <laughs> I think my stylist had 110 bobby pins, like pins to my head. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, and it's funny because in that video, I didn't have the custom guitars yet. I just had a regular black one. Right. Not nearly as cool. I mean, still nice, but not nearly as cool. These are, I played Carlos, um, my agent called me and said that um, Major Laser and Marcus Mumford were uh, doing a video called Lay Your Head On Me. And they had asked for me to play guitar in that. So I did. And uh, <laughs> I played it outside right by my swimming pool and my partner, shot the video because this was during COVID, right? So we couldn't go into a set to record all this. So he's there with the tripod and the camera's like, is this okay? And I went, I think so. I can't hear anything. And I just, they loved it. So, okay. 
<clears throat> yeah, actually, yeah. I was looking for the. I I actually have a Mumford and Sons shirt. <laughs> oh, do you? Yeah, they're great. I, I love them. I couldn't find it. So, <laughs> so uh, Emiko, can we tell me because one thing that I really like from is that the video you did with uh, Cindy Loper, Hope. Oh, Hope, yeah. Me. So, how did that happen? I <laughs> I was in New York. These things happen at the weirdest times. I was in New York, and my agent called me. And I was in New York fighting this, this case, as a matter of fact, the one that's still going on. And I was staying with my ex-manager in her apartment, because she's one of my best friends. And my agent called me and said, hey, I have sort of an audition for you, but it's not really. It's for this video pro. She didn't tell me very much. I said, okay. I didn't know what it was. She just said, just go. I want you to do it. So I went down to Soho. Uh, and she said, they'll have a keyboard for you there. Don't worry about it. And I said, okay, fine. So I go down there. They did not have a keyboard. They wheeled over a table, like a flat, like an office table on wheels. And they said, can you pretend to play keyboard? And I went, sure. And I thought, this is the weirdest. What am I doing? I'm going to call her later and tell her, this is a waste of my time. Why do you, you know? And so... I did it. I walked out. She called me. She goes, how did it go? And I went, I don't know. I have no idea what that, what did you, what did you put me in? What is this? I can't tell you yet. I can't tell you yet. I said, I don't like this Ingrid. I want to, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. So I go back to my manager's house. uh, And then I'm getting ready to leave to come back to Los Angeles. And I'm on a, at the time I was basically broke. So I, I was on a shared bus to the airport like you know many people get on this and we all go pick each other up and then we go to the airport and uh we were just about to get onto the the new jersey turnpike so we were just crossing from new york to new jersey because i was flying out of new jersey to go back to la (laughs) and my phone rings and it's my agent she goes hey uh you they need you for another meeting and i went no, <laughs> I'm not going to go play a table again. She goes, no, 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 trust me, trust me, just do it, just please, please, please. Where are you? And I said, I'm on the shuttle to the airport. She goes, get off the shuttle. And I went, so I sort of walked up to the, excuse me, sir, right to the driver, sir, I need, he goes, yeah, we, we have to, and I said, no, just drop me off right here, like on the corner, cars whizzing by. So yeah. he pulls over, puts the blinkers on, I get out as quickly as I can because the passengers are looking at me like, what is going on here? He throws my suitcase out the back, drives off, and I went, okay, I guess I have to take a taxi now. So I called a cab, went back to my friend's house, and she said, what's going on? And I said, my agent called, they want me to do this. I don't know. She goes, well, what is it? And I said, I don't know. So the next day I had to get all dressed. I didn't, and I didn't have any clothes for this because, you know, I'm there for a court case. I'm not there to go be rock and roll. So I had like a suit. And so my, my girlfriend lent me some clothes. I go back to the same place. I played the same table, Chana, but this time they asked me to play a table and sing. And next to me was a guy with invisible drums. And I thought, no, 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 this is just weird now. <laughs> I can't deal with this. But I did it. They said, thank you very much. We'll be in touch. And I sort of thought, 
all right, whatever. Got on the subway, went back to my friend's house, called my agent. I said, look, I can't stay here forever. I don't live here, right? You know, I live in LA. I go back and forth, but I don't live here and I can't live on her couch forever. So she said, okay, okay, okay. Go back tomorrow. So I paid like $300 to change my plane ticket. Go back tomorrow, get on the plane, go back to LA. I land at midnight that next morning at eight o'clock in the morning, my agent calls me, hey, so did you go back to LA? Yeah, I did. Why? Oh, uh, cause you got the gig. I don't care, Ingrid. What's the gig? You haven't told me what the gig is yet. What is, what is it? Am I playing music for a table factory? Like, what is this? She goes, no, you're playing keyboards for Cindy Lauper. And I just went, what? <laughs> like, I mean, jumping up and down on my bed, freaking out the whole thing. This was a very particular campaign that she was doing. It was a, I don't remember how many weeks this thing lasted, but it was a very specific thing for this new song, Hope that she put out that ended up being used for this television commercial as well um, uh, for some sort of medic, uh, I forgot, it's psori I think it's psoriasis medication or something like that. But anyway, um, and the song went on to do quite well uh, and I got to work with her band. Her, I don't know why, cause she has a regular keyboard player that I know actually, but they didn't, they either didn't feel he was the right fit for it or they wanted somebody a little different or I, I don't know what was going on, but they specifically needed me. Um, and so I got to spend some good time with her. She's just incredible. Like I got there at first day, I got there at like five in the morning for hair and makeup and she walks in at, you know, 6.15. She has her own makeup people, right? And she walks by the makeup area. She looks at me and she goes, hi, you know, in that voice, in that voice that she has. And she's so sweet. I'd never met her before. And I'm sitting in the chair trying not to freak out, right? Shaking. And she looks at the makeup artist who I guess she knew. She goes, she doesn't look crazy enough. You got to make her look more crazy. Can you do crazy? And I was like, sure, Cindy, I can do crazy. I'll ride a unicycle, whatever you want, you know? And it was one of the most inspiring moments she when she works like she lifts everybody up right she's she's very hard on you she's very particular about what she wants and how she wants it done but it's because everything she does is quality and the way that she gets it across to you is so motivating like she wants you to do well she wants you to bring your best you know she's not there to to cut you down like some artists are and Man, the time that I got to spend with her was just fantastic. Really, really fantastic. So, yeah. So that was that was hope. Emika, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, can you tell me a little bit about, because you do also music for like movies and uh, other, other yeah. stuff also, right? And you have your mm -hmm. own company as well. Yeah, I do. I, I do. Yes. Um, I... Uh, I compose music for film and television as well. Mm. Um, I worked on a, a television show here in the United States called American Pickers for a while. It's like a reality show. Um, it's still on as a matter of fact, which is cool. Um, and then there was a bunch of stuff I did for VH1 and some other networks. 
Um, and then most recently I did a, a film called The Praetorian, uh, which was starring uh, Tom Sizemore, um, who was in Black Hawk Down and a bunch of other, was he in Black Hawk Down or was he in Saving Private Ryan? Anyway, uh, <laughs> so that's coming out. And then um, I was asked to score a short film called Black Lives Matter when we here had this yet again unrest to say the least. Um, and that film went on to win a bunch of uh, really great um, film festival awards and recognitions and things because it was a it was the whole crew were women of color so we were either Asian or we were African American um, which was really neat because it was told from an Asian woman's perspective as to why this is so important well why racial equity and equality are so important in the United States because it's not just the color of your skin it's how we all have to work together as minorities to help and support one another. Um, so I do a fair amount of that in terms of scoring work. Um, and then I also, my company produces documentaries and we have a recording studio in North Hollywood called Tiny Cactus Productions. I don't know why we named it that, but that's stuck and that's what we call it now. And we have a number of really cool, um, things i can't say what they are they're initiatives that are coming out of there in the next three months so i want everybody to stay tuned for that um oh and speaking of positive things um another thing that i can't really talk too much about but i can say by the time this comes out this this podcast i think we will be able to talk about it more um the other thing that i work to do in my other company is um, help, help is the wrong word. We facilitate opportunities for musicians that have positive stories. So like you were saying, Chana, how you want to put positivity out into the world because social media is so filled with mm. crap for lack of a better term, sorry, but it is. Um, we have a community that does that and it's, it even has a positive name. We're not allowed to say the name yet because we haven't officially launched, but uh, by the time this comes out, I think you'll be able to maybe add a link to it or something because you'll be invited to it too. If Alif hasn't told you already, he's going to. <laughs> um, so yeah, lots of stuff going on like that as well. So so this, this during this current, like, you know, this COVID and lockdown and all this, uh, you were you you're involved with a couple of podcasts, right? You were doing your own podcast or oh, you tell gosh. What's happening? Yes, I have so I actually have three podcasts that I'm doing. One is called Across the Board, and I do that with um Grammy Award winning producer Mike Exeter. And Mike is a good friend. He produced um Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and Cradle of Filth and like all this really heavy, heavy dudes, right? Big guys. And we talk about uh, mental health and wellness in the music industry. Um, and we have different guests on every week. It's on Tuesdays and we go live on Facebook. So it's interactive. So people can type their questions and their comments and share experiences and things like that. And then we archive the show um, because we want to break the stigma of mental health in music. Um, then on every other Wednesday, I do a show called The Gear You Hear with my good friend, Scott, the pedal guy. And we, like last week, we had on uh, Chaka Khan's musical director, uh, yeah. Melvin, who was tremendous. It was so much fun. And we just talked gear for like an hour. We talk about his setup. We talk about production. We talk about 
you know, not just technical, but the creative side of how you use the gear and, you know, um, how, how you implemented a lot of signature stuff. And then on Thursdays, this was on hiatus for a while. So I was doing this for a while. Then we took a break and now it's coming back and it starts on the 15th or the 21st of October. Um, I do a show called the talk literally like a talk show, the talk, um, for, uh, an organization called the home entertainment show. And that's all about high end audio and hi-fi. So we talk all things, audiophile, all things, music enthusiast, um, everything from systems to speakers, to cables, uh, to hi-fi tastemakers, vinyl reissues. Um, and that's a good hour again, also on Facebook live. So it's very interactive and people can ask questions. So yeah, there's a lot of, <laughs> There's a lot of podcasting going on right now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Actually, even this uh, this podcast uh, I started because uh, I I used to. I mean, I I go to a lot of concerts and gigs, right. and that's what I do. Uh, but once the COVID hit, so all the shows got canceled. Sure. So and you cannot travel yeah. anywhere. So that's why right. I actually started that. Actually, started this podcast because of COVID. <laughs> Wow. But you're, I mean, this podcast is, it's blowing up though. Like so many people are, are listening to it. And I know it's ranking on Spotify in certain, in certain uh, regions in the world. And like, I thought you'd been doing this podcast for a lot longer. This is the first no, time finding no, no. out that you started it because of COVID. I was, cause you had 50 episodes when, um, I think when you and I first kind of connected, yeah, right, no, you had I your fiftieth anniversary episode. Yeah, I just did the sixtieth, sixty-one. I think right, last one was sixty-one, and then oh uh, I'm already booked till twenty twenty-one. All my weekends. Wow, that's <laughs> amazing, Chana! Congratulations, because that's I, brilliant. I I still try to find time to put some more guests because I have a lot of response from a lot of places right. because. I, I, I support a lot of up-and-coming artists, you know, people who doesn't yeah. have a platform. So there's a lot of requests for me to, you know, have, a, you know. But but the thing I, I don't do is I don't just interview someone just because they're asking me because I actually want right. to listen to their music. If I like it, then sure. I will actually talk to them. Right. <clears throat> so uh, I think lastly, I want to talk that you released your 2020 album, uh, LA After After War. And I think because yes. of all this pandemic and unrest, it, it, it feels like it's war, right? And uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, that yeah. record was um, five years, six years in the making. The record is actually, it chronicles my court battle. So it's a, it's a continuation from I believe you and from looking at later um, into if I could, if I, if I could tell the whole story, because with the pandemic happening, the courts aren't open. Right. They're not hearing cases. So there's nothing, there's no forward movement in that sense right now from a legal standpoint. I mean, I guess we could do other things, but um, in the courts, there's nothing happening. So, and then I'm sitting at home, I have all these songs. I'm gonna, I, I knew I was gonna make an album anyway. Um, and I was talking to a couple of friends of mine and they said, you know, you're always talking about how afraid you are. You don't know how this is gonna end. Well, one thing that we do, cause we're very big in um, but like neurophysiology and things about how you can change your brain by thinking and um, meditating. And, and there are certain exercises that you can do to actually rewire 
mm. uh, the neurons in your brain and the neural pathways. And so, and it's a proven science. And so I thought, okay, what are you guys going to tell me to do? <laughs> and they said, why don't you make the record and it ends the way you want it to end. You tell your story and you write the ending. You pull it out of thin air. Watch what happens. And I thought, you know, and I started doing that. And as I was doing that, um, it all started to happen. Like, and it's not magic. It's, this is what, when you put something out into the world and you focus on it, it grows. So if you put out love, love grows. If you put out hate, hate grows. If you put out coronavirus, coronavirus grows, as we're finding out. Right. Um, and so we specifically titled it LA After the War. Like that picture, the record cover of the two people standing, you know, sort of walking out of the, the airport terminal, that picture doesn't actually exist. Those are two separate pictures. Right. One was me holding someone else's hands in the shadow. And the other picture was a picture I took on a flight coming back from New York to LA in the middle of the night, just they composited it, the, the photos and I thought, but we have to, we have to decide how this ends. We have to decide the next chapter. We have to decide how this goes on. So there, there is the empowerment story of it's up to nobody but us. Right. Um, and so I titled, I titled it LA after the war because initially when I moved here, I thought the court case was going to be a lot shorter. And I thought, oh, well, LA, I'm moving to LA from New York. That'll be like my safe space. It'll be great. That's where I'll go after this is all done. Nope. <laughs> Turns out this fight is a little bit longer than I thought, but it still means that, you know, all wars will have an end, whether it's a personal one, whether it's a political one, whether it's a world war, all of them come to an end. And there does come a time of peace and prosperity. Um, and we may not have power and dominion over all of it, but we can certainly have power and dominion over ourselves. Right. And when we, when we take that and we take that from a place of love and kindness, I think it, it passes that along to other people in the community. Right. And if we start there, then we make progress. So in that respect, the record is, is, um, is very focused on that type of a spirit, uh, which I guess, is turning out to be very appropriate for this year yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you know so yeah so that's la after the war i'm extremely i'm extremely proud of it also because we recorded it all separately in quarantine and i never even met my base i still to this day i have not met my bass player right <laughs> How he's, that? Just, he's somebody that my guitarist introduced me to and said he, he'll do it and i went great and he's amazing and i've never met him so how's the response for that album? Oh, fantastic so far. We, uh, so the record came out in the middle of July. Um, I know that the first two singles, Great North Road and Man in the Ivory Tower, are doing very, very well on Spotify. They're, I don't know, 30,000 streams or whatever, which is the equivalent of $5, right, the way that Spotify pays out. But uh, I do know that we've been selling a lot and there are plans to make a limited edition vinyl for it mm. and there's also a plan to make an instrumental version of the record featuring carlos my guitar um so we will be doing there's a number of really cool creative things that this is um birthing but the record itself has been i feel like this particular record is really special because everybody's saying that there's at least one or two songs that they can relate to on there which is nice 
you know i think that's a that's a tremendous that's a tremendous statement of of uh of the songs and the production and the teamwork that everybody put into it so i'm i'm really happy with the response so far yeah right <clears throat> so emiko what's your message to your the fans other than buy the record <laughs> you want a bigger message than please go buy the record um <clears throat> i think i have i think i have a couple of messages really one is in all in all seriousness i mean one is um there's going to be a lot of people in the world that are going to tell you that you can't well rather than take that to heart while they're busy telling you that you can't go do it just go do it that's number one and nobody nobody's going to be able to tell you that you can't after you've done it then they're going to step back and go holy moly you did it um and the other thing that is really 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 i think important now there's a lot of Especially with social media and the internet, there's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of sort of people breaking off into little groups and cliques and things. And you know, I grew up being really different. I looked different. I had a different name when I was growing up. In a you know, in the states, it, you were either a white kid or an African American kid. Maybe you were Hispanic, and you had sort of regular names. Emiko was like, they're like, what is that? Where does that come from? I never felt like I had a place. So if you feel like you don't have a place, just go make a place for yourself. Don't ever think that you have to fit in with somebody else. The best thing you can do for yourself is if you build your own road. Yes, it's a little bit harder. It takes a little bit longer. There are some lonely nights for sure, but you get to be the trailblazer. And that's something that I found. Now I'm starting to realize why I never fit in before because none of those places were my place. I had to make my place. And if I can do it, you can do it. And I would like everybody to take that very seriously because there's a lot of people, especially with coronavirus, staying home, right? Not sort of being isolated. I think it's very easy to get more depressed than usual yeah. for people. And so I, I would, anybody that's watching this, just know you have the same level of power and creativity and tools that anybody else has. You may not have the money or the resources, that's a different story, but in you, you do have those things. And if you can dig deep and find them, you can get yourself to that better place and it'll be your place that nobody can take away from you. So I'd say that's my message. Thanks, <laughs> that's a nice message. <laughs> <Deep>. <laughs> so anybody you want to shout out to? other than Victoria, my bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess so. I mean, my band, uh, Jamie Hamburg, Ethan Kate, who I still have not met, uh, Boz Jansen, Jansen, depending on how you say his name, he, uh, he was my, our drummer and he mixed the whole thing, Jamie engineered it. Um, and uh, my, my partner, Maurice, my parents, my son, Oscar, mama loves you very much. Um, and Victoria, who's downstairs probably waiting to eat dinner right now. Um, and just, uh, just, I'm shouting out to everybody and just know that, you know, this is, it's a, t it's a tough time that we're going through, but it can also be a beautiful time if you allow it, if you celebrate the small things, you know, there's a lot of tragedy going on. 
don't miss the miracles that are out there. So yeah, mm -hmm. shout that out. <laughs> So Mick, yeah. good, uh, it, it was so nice to talk to you, uh, finally talk to you. And then it's very, uh, I'm really moved from, you know, your message, messages that you, you, you're putting out. So keep, keep making all this good music, inspirational music. And then I don't know, hopefully someday I, I will be able to see you perform <laughs> live. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe from a distance with a mask on, but absolutely, Chana. Thank you for, thank you for having me on. Thank you for inviting me to do this. This is so much fun. I love your podcast and the, the level of, I do want to say this to everybody, the level of support that Chana gives to artists of all genres, all levels, all walks of life. Um, please understand that we need more people like Chana out there. So if you're thinking of starting a podcast or you're thinking of, you know, doing it, go for it. But more than that, share Chana's podcast out, share it with your friends, go learn about a new band or a new artist that he's into because he's got really good taste. I mean, hello. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. But seriously, go share out his podcast and subscribe to you're on, you're on Spotify and iTunes and you're everywhere. Yes. So, uh, Emiko, lastly, tell everyone how they can follow you. Uh, well, I drive pretty fast, so you'd have to drive <laughs> fast to follow me. <laughs> um, no, all of my... So <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting punchy. It's the end of the night here. Um, all, of my, all of my social media is at Emiko Music, E-M-I-K-O Music. Um, and then my website, which... Nobody go to my website because it hasn't been updated in a while. But it's emicomusic.com. Everything is Emico Music. So if you just Google that, you'll find me. Right. So thanks. Thank you, Emiko. So have a great evening. <laughs> Thank you, Chana. Thank you. you as well. Have a great day. Thank you.